In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite writers, <clears throat> Oliver Berkman, recently observed that many people feel as if they start off each morning in a kind of productivity debt, which they must struggle to pay off through the day in the hopes of reaching a zero balance by the time that evening comes. He writes this, he says, few things feel more basic to my experience of adulthood than this vague sense that I'm falling behind and need to claw my way back up to some minimum standard of output. It's as if I need to justify my existence by, quote, staying on top of things in order to stave off some ill-defined catastrophe that might otherwise come crashing down upon my head. Now, this sort of idea of a productivity debt that you begin every day in the red and then you sort of climb up to get as close to black as you can before it's starting again, it doesn't just apply to work, I don't think. It's equally easy to feel like you're in debt when it comes to maybe making the world a better place, volunteering, being a good husband or wife or parent or friend. There's just so much that needs doing, and so naturally you're going to have to really buckle down if you have any hope of getting up to zero throughout the day. Now this is a great way to introduce, I think, the concept of justification, which runs throughout the Bible. Justification. Those of us who spend all day, every day, trying to prove ourselves worthy of air, or worthy of being here at all, um, know what it means to want to justify yourself, to feel like I belong, that I am valuable, and that my existence is somehow significant. Any and all human activity, by the way, can be, can be drafted into the courtroom of justification. Uh, what do you think of sometimes the, as you're falling asleep at night, maybe you think you've gotten pretty close to zero, but then some evidence trickles in into that courtroom. The prosecution ignites and says, oh, you forgot to do that. Or they forgot to do that. Maybe it's the person lying next to you who forgot it. But the defense, the prosecution, it never rests. It's, it's, it's insane making. And so, you know, anything can be drafted into this courtroom. It can be the, the number on the weight scale the second you wake up. It can be the clothes you wear. It can be the food you eat. It can be the car you drive. It can be the sticker on the back of that car. It can be the work you do, it can be the busyness of your social life, it can be your paycheck, what neighborhood you live in, what high school did you go to, what high school do your kids go to, what church do you attend? I don't know what it is, but we, we're ingenious when it comes to co-opting, otherwise good things or just normal things into that courtroom of justification. Now, one very popular way to justify ourselves has to do with comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I may not be doing so great, but at least I'm better than that guy over there. Or, uh, or conversely, gosh, my sister sure seems to be moving from strength to strength, and I'm stuck here spinning my wheels. I don't know what it is, but we compare ourselves to other people, and we think, thank God I'm not 
like her or him. Thank God I'm not one of those people. We have a thirst for this kind of justification, which means it never actually reaches a satisfaction. We, we always need just a little bit more. And Berkman concludes, and he's a completely sort of secular writer, he says, paying off your productivity debt completely, that is working so hard and so efficiently that you no longer feel like you're falling behind, is literally impossible. Not just grueling and unpleasant. In the modern world of work, for instance, there's no limit to the number of emails or texts you might receive, the demands your boss might make, the ambitions you might have for your career, etc. So there's no reason to believe you'll ever get to the end of them. And that's just work. What about life at home? Maybe you're a person who thinks, well, after this one project, then my house will finally be where I want it to be. Not, you know, as Wayne's world would say. You know, there's one last closet that needs to be organized, and then we've really got our clutter under control. You know, then life happens, and something else clutters up your house. Now, this is also like people with small children, like myself, just laugh at this very idea. Because like my kids, I found that one of the things when um, two of them were away at summer camp this summer and my wife and I turned to each other, is like, wow, we can clean it up faster than one child can mess it up. <laughs> but three children, I mean, forget it. It's just a complete losing battle. Meanwhile, if you're a person who feels like you have to stay on top of things and demonstrate that you care about everything going on in the world, the media will greet you with a barrage, a giant machine that it engineered to expose you to the bottomless suffering that the human race is enduring. More things to care about than St. Francis of Assisi was ever asked to comment on. Today's parable, this famous parable known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, suggests that as far as God is concerned, we might drop the whole charade. This whole productivity debt, moral debt, to-do list form of, of living uh, goes, is a dead end when it comes to God. Your money is simply no good here. Uh, the, what do I mean? Well, the parable has um, two characters in it, and they're beautifully illustrated. I, I say this because we're starting an adult education class this morning between on, on the history of Christian art, and I highly commend it to you. Um, and so I was thinking about art a lot this week, and there's uh, Gustave Doré, the French artist. He illustrated the Bible in the late 19th century, and he has an engraving called The Pharisee and the Publican, and it is unbelievably profound. There's a large doorway and Jesus is standing outside the doorway talking to some people. And inside the doorway, it's clearly the temple and, and there are two figures. And one, the first one is the Pharisee. And he is standing upright and he looks very serious. He looks, you know, like a religious guy. He knows what he's doing in the temple. He's wearing the right clothes. He looks serious and he's looking upward at God and he's saying his prayers. He's also holding a walking stick, but he's barely leaning on it. Now this Pharisee, we hear from his mouth that he is a, a good person. He gives away a lot of money. He's very charitable. He puts his money where his mouth is. He fasts twice a week, meaning he's very pious. He's there in the temple, who knows how much. But he's not meant to be a sort of a villain. He's the kind of, you know, this, this always comes up right before stewardship season. 
you need a lot of Pharisees to keep the lights on, frankly. So <laughs> they actually give their money away. So it's, it's really nice to have them around until, until you screw up, I guess. But the, he's, a, he's a good guy. I don't want to paint him as a villain. <clears throat> but the second next to him is the tax collector. We don't even know that because this man is crouched down. His face is almost on the floor. He's bended on one knee, and you cannot see his face. And he has a walking stick too, but he's not only not leaning on it, it's just spread out in front of him. He's just collapsed, basically, into this temple. And this tax collector is not meant to be an object of our sympathy. Uh, don't think of him that way. He was uh, un unsympathetic to the max. Uh, this man was a crook, a loan shark, a collaborator, a traitor who had gotten rich through his betrayal. He comes in and beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But this is not the kind of sob story that anyone would want to hear. This is cry me a river territory. Oh, so sad for you, Mr. Tax Collector feeling bad about yourself, reaping what you've sown. You deserve no better than this for fleecing us, your fellow Jews and your family members. This is not a sympathetic character. And so you'd think that given the two characters, that if anyone would be justified, if anyone would be sort of close to zero, it would be the Pharisee. He is doing all the right things. He looks the right way. He is in the right place. And yet instead, the light from the doorway in this engraving, the light is cast on only one character, and it is the tax collector. who cannot even see the light because it's coming on the back of him. He is the one who is who Jesus' blessing is clearly moving toward. And um, he's looking at his shoes and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is who Jesus says goes home justified, and it is an offensive and yet incredibly beautiful portrait of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, the heart of what Christ came to talk about. And there are three implications of this parable that I'll go through very quickly. One is that desperation, not virtue, is the key that unlocks the door of God's favor and attention. I wish it weren't the case but it's true. My older brother is fond of saying that God's office is at the end of your rope. Which is another way of telling you this morning, if you are in a desperate spot, about this, that, or the other, or simply about life in general, if you are in a desperate spot, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe there is light shining on you that you can't even see. Secondly, we learn that self-righteousness is more detrimental to the spiritual life than self-indulgence. Self-righteousness, it turns out, is the great enemy, not only of sympathy and unity, but love. When this Pharisee speaks, he uses the word I. I thank you that I am not like other men. I tithe, I fast. This sort of sense of his own virtuousness keeps him focused on himself, and more than that, it distances him from other people. In fact, Jesus says, or that we're told that the, the parable is told to those who not only feel self-righteous, but feel contempt 
for other people. Not only distance from them, but actual contempt. Thank God I'm not like him. So self-righteousness is more detrimental than self-indulgence. But three, what we learn is that those whom God has justified have no productivity or moral debt that they are trying to work off. This is the great truth at the heart of this parable. And I wish we believed it. I wish I believed it more deeply than I do. Or that my belief in this was more than just a fleeting hope. I mean, what, what if? What if you worked on the basis that you began each day at a zero balance? So that everything you accomplished, every task you got done, every tiny thing you did to address the world's troubles or the needs of your household, only put you further in the black. What if there's nothing you ever have to do to earn your spot on the planet? What if everything you actually get around to doing on any given day, by God's grace, is in some important sense surplus? Well, people might say, well, then why would anyone do anything? That sounds like you're taking away people's motivation to do good things. Well, is that really true? I don't know about you, but I find for myself that I'm much better able to relax in the midst of having too much to do when I'm not caught up in this neurotic quest to stay on top of everything. I'm far better placed to actually do things for other people, for my family, for the world, when I'm not wrapped up in angst and anxiety. And yet, make no mistake, this parable is a great offense. It is a great offense to justice and to fairness and to all those who are by sweat and by strength trying to do the right thing and in fact maybe even are doing the right thing who spend their days working hard to get back to zero. This is an offense to our attempts at self-justification, yet it is also why we are here in church this morning. You know, we come through and we say something called the Collect for Purity, which is a prayer that says, God, you, there are no secrets hid from you. All desires are known to you. In other words, any pretense you have of being better than other people should be dropped at that door because that's the sort of transparency we're talking about when we talk about God. But not only that, when we get up to communion, before we get up to here, we say something called the prayer of humble access in which we say, we do not presume to come to this, thy table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. Thy manifold and great mercies. You know, I love that. I was driving through rural North Carolina recently, and I saw... Uh, a church sign, and a lot of these church signs, you know, you just sort of want to drive even faster, but like th this one said, when you're down to nothing, God is up to something. And I thought, gosh, that sounds pretty great. This God, this justifying God who requires nothing from us other than our need so that he might give us everything. Back to zero before we have even woken up. This is who God is. He has judged you on account of Christ, full up, sufficient, 
As Romans says it, Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So that we might say, instead of thank God I'm not like him, say thank God he, Jesus, is not like me. This Jesus who saves rather than judges who went to the cross to prove that his property is always to have mercy. Always, even when he is being persecuted, even when he is being rebelled against, even when he is being put and executed on that cross, his property is always to have mercy, day after day, hour after hour, moment by moment, including right now. Amen.